Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. This week, we're focusing on cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. First, we hear from Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. I caught up with Cox along with other reporters after he spoke at the recent CDM Summit sponsored by FCW. Give me a sense of, of what goes into where, what are the it's vulnerability and configuration mm -hmm. management, right? Yeah. What, what, what's, what's underneath? Where is developed based on some work that other agencies have, agencies have done over the past few years. So State Department had uh, the iPost algorithm, Department of Justice has the security posture dashboard algorithm, but a lot of them, a lot of what they're all doing is the same thing. So they're, it's taking a look at the, the vulnerability data tied to the CVSS scoring, and then the kind of the special sauce is that it's there's some weighting occurring. So it's looking at particular vulnerabilities. If they're at the highest level of the scale, a 10, a critical vulnerability, that's going to be weighted much higher than a 3. Also, it takes into account aging of the vulnerability. So if the vulnerability is one week old versus two months old, the two-month-old vulnerability is going to have a higher weighting than, than lower. So that weighting is all built into the algorithm, and then it has the, the configuration piece, so we're, we're still building that in, but what we're looking at is probably a, a common set of about 30 uh, really important configuration settings. Uh, utilizing the uh, DISA-STIG configuration uh, approach to give measurement to that as well. So being able to check to make sure that a system has this particular configuration in place. If it doesn't, then the, the score is going to reflect that. The other thing I want to mention is that the AWARE algorithm is similar to like the credit score and it's measuring just a few things. But whereas the credit score is going up, the higher your credit score, the better off you are. It's the opposite with the AWARE algorithm. We want the score to be lower because that reflects that there are fewer vulnerabilities on that system. There are fewer misconfigurations. The overall attack surface is smaller than what it would be if it were a higher score. 30 seems like an awful lot. And then you add on top of that the other piece. How did you guys come up with that number? I know you said it's Justice and, and State had some input or, or had some experiences well, with it. Well, yeah, we partnered with them to see what they had done in the past and, and really utilize a lot of what they had had success with. Uh, but the 30 is simply based on if we, so the agencies have a lot of different configuration baselines in place. And we were recognizing that it would not be the best approach for us to come in and say, everybody now has to implement this one configuration baseline ha and you have to do at the start 200 controls. So what we started with is that the DISA STIGs are a set of configuration baselines that are maintained uh, by DOD, by DISA. And so rather than mandating that all the agencies have to implement the entire DISA STIGs, we started with a category one piece of the DISA STIGs, which is about the, the 30 the 30 controls. And why we started with category one is because that represents the most critical configuration settings we want to have in place. And most of the baselines that agencies were using are meeting those 30 anyhow. So it just seemed like a, a good compromise to get started. And then over time, we can introduce additional configuration checks as appropriate. Cox was then asked about how AWARE measures agency progress with configuration management. The settings that we're looking at from the STIG, it's really looking to see is this configuration in place or is it not? And so if it's not, then that gets reflected in the score. Uh, and so those 30 checks, it's really, I don't, know, I don't know if all of them, but most of them are uh, either on or off type setting. 
So it's simply a check to see is, is that configuration properly set so then the agency is protected. And if it's not set, then it's, it's an avenue that the adversary can use to get in on the system. Or if there's a reason why it's not set there's an explanation well, that comes and, that, and that's the thing that, that we're working to get the we're working to get the message out to the agencies that going out with aware we we don't want there to be any uh, misconceptions that we're going to be able to do a lot of nuancing and in many ways aware is simply an instrument to get a, an overall view across the entire federal enterprise as we work to operationalize it over the next uh, few quarters we're going to be looking at how each agency looks, what it looks like environment by environment. But over time, once we get aware in place, that's going to give us a, a, a sense of what the overall federal landscape looks like. But then there are always going to be cases where there are mitigations in place for some of these vulnerabilities or some of these configurations where it might explain why a particular configuration is not set because they have another mitigation in place. So we want to build that nuance in over time, but right now we need a mechanism to measure the entire federal government on this, this idea of cyber hygiene. How are we doing overall with patching? How are we doing overall with configuring, configuring our systems? Cox then was asked about how agencies can use the data to make decisions about who they work with. Well, if they have a really low score, they, they're probably in better shape. It's, if they have oh, a really high score, yeah. <laughs> a poor score. A poor, exactly, good, good. No, that, that's exactly what we're looking to be able to provide to the agencies. Eventually what we want to do is get the AWARE score down to the system level. So then if I am an agency and I have a system connecting out to another agency's system, and I want to make sure that I'm not connecting to a system that's not properly managed, I could take a look at their AWARE score. And if it's a poor score, I'm going to have some questions about establishing that peer-to-peer that -peer connection. And so that's, that's where, as we mature this, we'll be able to really give the agencies the ability to measure how other systems they're connecting to are doing from a basic cyber hygiene perspective. Uh, we're not doing any scans that, we're, that are not already part of the CDM program. So all we're utilizing is data from the sensors that we've deployed and the scanning capabilities already deployed and making use of that data. And that's been one of the things that we've at, been asked from our leadership, from OMB, from the Hill, uh, from the agencies is how are you able to measure the effectiveness of CDM and this is really one set of and really our first set of metrics to say with the sensors out there and the data feeding up to the, the data integration layer and to the dashboards we can start to utilize that data to measure how agencies are doing from a cyber perspective and in this case it's cyber cyber hygiene or cyber hygiene so basic things like patching, having visibility on their assets. Are those assets tied to systems or are they just floating out there? Those types of things are, are what we're looking at here. Coxon talked about how DHS is working with agencies to implement AWARE through the CDM program. Out of the gate with AWARE, it's going to give us a holistic view of basic cyber hygiene. We now, so if you look at how the adversaries are attacking our systems, they're attacking the low-hanging fruit first, so things that aren't patched, things that aren't properly configured. They're attacking systems that are using password authentication rather than multi-factor authentication with, with two or three factors. So that's the next thing that we're, we're already starting to look at is how do we measure how agencies are doing with multi-factor authentication. So looking at some basic 
two or three different things that will give us a good holistic understanding of how we, the federal government, and then how we agency by agency are doing. And then ultimately, when we get the scores down to the system level, how each system owner is doing with protecting their systems. Because well, DHS is in, is in that tough position in some ways where you have the responsibility, but authority is still sometimes tough. If, if I'm an agency and my score is high, meaning I'm not doing well, I, I know you're partnering with OMB, CDM is not a DHS only, but what's the teeth behind, hey, agency X, you your score is 800, you really need to be closer to 400 for us to be comfortable, fix it. What, what's the next kind of like, and maybe it's too early because you're just at the beginning stages. I don't know that we necessarily need a set of authorities on this, uh, because let me explain. So. By getting the tools out there and, ha and already having the partnerships with the agencies, that we help provide the tools, we help provide the capabilities, and, and then we summarize the data up to the federal dashboard, is that we already have that partnership in place. The key thing is what gets measured gets done. So once you get that visibility across the agencies, it really becomes the looking at how they're doing compared to their peers. And, and so it's not necessarily that we need to come down with a hammer and say, your score's bad and, and you're not doing what you need to do, it's we're already partnered with them, we're getting the visibility now with the score, and we can say, okay, it looks like you have a, a higher score than your, your peer, what is it that we can do to help you get that score lower? Are, is there a, a, a technology you need? Is there a, a new capability? That sort of thing. I won't call it naming and shaming because you wouldn't say that, but it, it's that power of of hey, look at your near peer, and come on, yeah. we, we've got to be it's, better. Uh, there's there's a, a level of peer pressure here. I, I don't want to be perceived as doing worse than my peers at the next agency. Another question came around what DHS is doing to operationalize AWARE. What we're doing, uh, the key thing with AWARE was we needed to get all of the agency dashboards upgraded to version 5. Uh, we're just about done with that. Now we've got the data coming in. We're doing some uh, data quality checks there. Uh, but we have uh, today about uh, nine AWARE scores in place. And then as, as more and more come in, then what we're going to do is be looking at it statistically, looking at the entire community, racking and stacking how all the scores look and, and seeing what the community looks like. But then what we want to look at, just like, um, again, using the, the analogy of the credit score, is there are certain ranges that the credit score comes out with. And you know, if, I'm in, if I fall in this range, I'm in, in very good territory, I'm in good territory, or I have a poor score. We're looking at how we operationalize that to do the same thing with AWARE. I don't know that we're going to get to like an ABCDF kind of framework, but we want to at least get to a set of ranges where agencies should know that they're, they want to aim for this, this range for their score. What we had started out with, with just doing a statistically normal bell curve, we were looking at how each agency does against the average, and that's where we're going to start out with. But at the end of the day, we don't, uh, and our leadership has said as much, we don't want to grade on a curve. We want to have a set of ranges that represent uh, excellent, very good, good, et cetera. Once the data comes in, we'll be able to look at how the scores shake out. We'll have a better sense of uh, what is good, what's not so good, and then that's what will allow us to set the range. And then we will be able to answer that question that the higher the score, not so good, the lower the score, better. So uh, maybe uh, a 50 is a, a good score, 250 is not so good. And, and the one thing that we have to look at is we have to be careful of this, this sense of that we want to get all agencies to zero vulnerabilities. Because from an operational standpoint, that just in some ways becomes untenable 
Uh, what we want to do is make sure that they're addressing the most critical and, and those high vulnerabilities first and get as close to zero as possible, but recognizing that there's going to be some play there just based on when the, the product patching cycles come out and, and so on. So those are the types of things that we're looking at with the operationalization effort. We have to take a break. You just heard from Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. I caught up with Cox along with other reporters after he spoke at the recent CDM summit sponsored by FCW. Was this a offshoot of CDM kind of like, hey, we can do this because we have the dashboard? Or, or was this kind of, I'll say, planned all along, meaning it was, this was a good occurrence or a good, good, oh, wow, like, like did something click and you guys, DHS, GSA, said, oh, we can do like, how, how did this come about, I guess? It really was part of the program from the start with the idea of getting the data into the dashboard. We wanted, in, in operationalizing the dashboard in the NCIC, the, the folks that are responsible for incident response across the whole federal landscape, we wanted to have a mechanism if a zero-day hit or a wanna cry, something like that, that there would be a mechanism that the NCIC would be able to turn the dial up and say, agencies, this is a priority path. This is a priority vulnerability you need to address. You need to get the patches in place for this. So all we're doing with AWARE is taking the first step to uh, achieve that goal from the start, where we'll have a, a way to measure. Well, first of all, we'll have a way to use the data, get some metrics on, on how uh, agencies are doing, but then be able to use those, take action with that data to address critical vulnerabilities coming in turn up the weight. That's why going back to what the aware, AWARE algorithm is, there's weighting in there. We can turn up the weight on a particular vulnerability, shoot scores up so that agencies know they've got to put some attention to that and then get that visibility. So it, it has been there from the start. This is just a mechanism we're taking to get it in place. Cox was then asked if the AWARE scores would be made public. That We still have to work that out with leadership. We have to take a look at it from a risk perspective. So if, if we were to publish all the agency scores and, and the adversary could see which agencies are doing well, which are, we're, we're doing them in a disservice. When uh, the agencies are working with the IGs through the whole FISMA process, there are pieces that they shield from certain uh, risk-related pieces that don't get published out because of the, 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 the threat from the adversary, that, that it gets published up to leadership, to Congress, to, but it doesn't, um, the, the threat-related, the, the real uh, risk-related information is not as public. So we have to look at that. We have to t do the, the same review and see what is it that we can publish. Perhaps we anonymize agency names or um, some other mechanism. So we, we want to be as transparent as possible, but we also don't want to put the agencies at risk. So it's finding that balance. Cox then talked about why setting up the AWARE program will take most of fiscal year 2019. It depends on the agency. We've got, in some cases, firewall changes that need to be made. You've got some cases where the sensor data, the, the reporting interval into the dashboard is a different interval than what the sensor is showing real time. So just making sure that that's clear all the way through and doing that agency by agency. 
What we wanted to be careful of is going out at the beginning of FY19 with these scores and, and the data is just not all represent, representing what it is down on the ground at the agency. So we've built this grace period essentially in for 19 to get this right so that once it does become production that the agencies have confidence that the data showing does reflect the reality of their, their systems that leadership looking at the data has a sense that this does represent reality across the federal.gov. So that's what the FY19 period looks it for. One big challenge for DHS is to ensure AWARE is not just another compliance scorecard. That's the other thing we want to start to, to look at other ways of conceptualizing cyber risk is getting away from the dashboard that's just red, yellow, green. It's, it's really operationalizing the data to make it as valuable as possible to, to ha have agencies be able to take action uh, to further secure their network. Was there any thought on looking at or starting with the 20 critical controls? When you look at SANS and some of the others who have put that out and said, here's 80% of the problem. If you fix, you can, you can solve 80% of your cybersecurity problems by fixing these 20 critical controls versus the STIG or, or whatever other areas. I mean, I'm not trying to question the STIG. There's probably nothing yeah. wrong with it, but but that seems like the what we've heard for the last decade of agencies. They don't do these 20 controls, and the rest you know, they're going down the the. So one of the things that this is one of the things that we're looking at as we move into ongoing authorization is what is the right tailoring of all the controls to really be able to say that system or that agency is properly managing their risk. For a decade and a half, we've been doing three-year ATO processes, assessing a hundred, hundreds of controls. The problem here, from my perspective, is that we are running short of people that can do cyber defense. We've got people that are in, in information assurance, and we need those people, but it's a matter of we, are, we have an urgent need to get more and more people that can get in and do true cyber defense, be able to respond as quickly as possible to the adversary, rather than simply assessing a set of controls on a system. So number one, one of the things CDM set out to do was to automate as much of the control processes as, as possible. So that's where some of the efficiency will come. But we want to look at what is the right way to tailor all of the controls so that we get down to those, those core controls that will give us uh, the best visibility uh, for a system. And then keep the, the information assurance folks in place to help ensure that but then help to get more resources shifted towards the cyber defense efforts, the security operations efforts, so that we can get in front of the threat and stay in front of the threat. Cox was then asked what the scores look like under the pilot program. As I mentioned, what we're looking at is, the, with the nine scores already, just looking at how they rack and stack. So you can see already uh, which agencies are really doing extremely well with cyber hygiene in terms of patching and getting in front. They're, they're going to have a very low score which agencies are higher, and, and so that's, that's giving us an indication already, hey, we need to potentially look at what that agency is doing uh, with all of their cybersecurity and risk management processes, have a better understanding of what's occurring there and see if there's something we, CDM, or their agency can do to tighten up their cybersecurity. So you, that's what we're seeing already is some of that, that difference between agency. But the key thing, is particularly initially, is that we will need to investigate what that score represents. Uh, once we do see an agency that has an extremely high score, it's not, we don't want to make some assumptions that they're just doing a, a terrible job at this. There might be reasons why we're not getting the data. So we need to, first of all, take a look and make sure that all the data is coming properly, that all the sensors are working. 
But if after we've done that, we do find that hey, they could use some help, then we work with the agency to say, what is it that, that will help you do better with cyber hygiene, with risk management? And that's where we can really direct our resources to help that. So that's what we're seeing so far. As we get more and more scores in, as we really uh, do a lot of the, the data quality checks and, and aligning the data representation, then we'll be able to see even more so what the scores represent, what's, what, as I mentioned earlier, what the good ranges are, what, where uh, some of the, the folks that need more help are. And Over the past three or four years, there's been a concerted effort across the federal government to prioritize uh, addressing critical and high vulnerabilities. So I think it is heartening what I've seen so far that a number of agencies have done quite well with that. And, and they are, they overall, they do have good cyber hygiene. Uh, as a, again, as, as mentioned, as more and more of the data comes in and we get all of the agency aware scores set up, we'll see more of that. But I think that is heartening to see that efforts underway in terms of making, bringing visibility to critical and high patches. I think we're seeing uh, the results of those efforts. We, we don't have folks that have, uh, there probably are environments out there that still have a lot of criticals and highs, and that's what we'll, we'll be able to target, but we're not seeing that across the board everywhere. It, it, I think a, a number of agencies have done really good work at tightening uh, their, their cyber hygiene processes up. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about AWARE is that we're looking to complement the work that was already occurring with the NCAT system. So you, uh, a few years ago, the federal government put in place a capability where the external boundary systems were being scanned. This and then, is beyond TIC or Einstein or? Yeah, it's, it's a service through the NCAC uh, offered to the agencies to get an external view of what their boundary looks like to someone sitting outside of the agency. So they do uh, regular scanning, and then it allows the agencies to see what their vulnerabilities are, are out from the external side, and then the agencies can work to get things patched that, that may, might not have been patched. So that's getting an external view. Now we're bringing in the CDM data for sensors on the internal side, so we want to provide a, a complement to that external view and, and start to give the agencies a complete complete visibility of their overall vulnerability posture, configuration posture, so that not only are they tightening up the boundary, but they're tightening up the inside. Because as we know, the adversaries were using uh, phishing and other mechanisms to get on the inside, and if the, if the boundary's protected, but the adversary's on the inside already, and things aren't patched, then systems are open. We have to take a break. You just heard from Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Homeland Security Department's CDM program. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Government. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the program, we shift to talk about artificial intelligence. First, we hear from Marina Fox, who leads the .gov domain services in the Office of Government-Wide Policy at the General Services Administration. Fox spoke at the recent Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's Big Data Summit. We started disrupting at GSA back in 2011 and 12, I think. Digital strategy gave us a lot of fuel for starting that disruption. And I'm a big fan of data disruption for the purposes of improving the status quo, not just for the sake of disruption. Making noise is great, but you have to have substance and real reality behind it, I guess, real requirements and um, strategy. So 
A couple examples. Digital analytics program, something we launched back in 2012. At the time, sounded like a, a dream. Imagine, so I'm a .gov program manager, so we have more than 5,000 .gov domains. So like gsa.gov, irs.gov, things like that. But a domain name doesn't mean a website. There's thousands of websites, subdomains, that can be created as a result of that. So in the executive branch alone, we have more than 5,000 websites, top-level domains, not even including subdomains. So it's a lot of websites. Well, imagine tagging all of them with one tag in order to create a one-stop shop to understand what the website traffic is like when it comes to public-facing .gov websites. And the reason for that was to understand how the traffic is moving from one site to another, how citizens and constituents perceive the news delivered um, by various leaders of the government, national disasters, how do we consume all that information presented in the, on .gov websites. So when we started doing that, there were a lot of critics and haters, and a lot of times people were saying, this is never gonna work. You know, it, it's the big brother approach, agencies are gonna push back, nobody wants to show their data, there are so many myths, but we did it. And we launched Digital Analytics Program. It's the largest custom implementation of Google Analytics Premium uh, under a single account. Uh, I, th I think still at this point, but don't quote me on that. But two years ago it was. And so what that did is we released it gradually. First we tagged the websites. And by the way, it's an OMB directive too, so that helped encourage agencies to participate in the program. So what we did is we, we first released act or gave access to agencies and owners of websites only. So let's say you're weather.gov, NOAA, so this is Department of Commerce only. No one else can view that data. And then a year after that we launched the program, the decision was made to release it government-wide. And there was so much fear behind it because for the first time ever, we're going to see other people's data. So there were a lot, a lot of lessons learned, and so sometimes you kind of have to step out of your comfort zone, share a little, and learn a lot as a result, and improve your content, improve the collaboration. There were a lot of myths busted. People thought certain agencies and certain websites were number one. Turns out everyone cares about the weather, mostly. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Your small talk is about the weather. You care about the weather because you have to get outside and go somewhere. We all use postal service. So it's like, of course, USPS is going to be one of the top trending sites. And I think those, are, those were like a lot of mythbusters and reality setting. And again, we would have never learned that had we not stepped outside of our comfort, disrupted our status quo a little bit in order to learn and improve ultimately for the citizens. I think there's uh, this impression across the government that GSA, people have been familiar with it for decades, is the hub in this massive wheel of government contracting and acquisition, and there's a kind of urban mythology assumption of you know massive mile-long cube farms of GSA employees reviewing contracts and paperwork um, in rote human fashion. In fact, people may not know that you're uh, right at the cutting edge of the, the title, AI, uh, to disrupt and using machine learning for uh, regulatory processes and uh, solicitation review. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. GSA does, at least on one of GSA's websites, fedbizops.gov, as you probably know that site, at least 500 new solicitations are posted every day. 
It's a lot. And that's just one of the sites, right? There's others where you can find solicitations. So FedBizOps is the one probably that's really well known and has a lot of traffic um, coming in and out. So there's a story. I like stories. I am part of a division that is responsible for accessibility government-wide, basically ensuring and training Section 508 coordinators across the executive branch to make sure that they are aware and trained on reviewing solicitations to ensure that information and communication technology products are built with respect and with the proper language when it comes to Section 508 law. It's a law, so if government releases a statement of work that does not contain proper Section 508 language, and that's just one of the federal regulatory requirements, but specifically this use case is Section 508 because it's near and dear to us. If there is no language as such, then the solicitation gets awarded and then the company that got the, the work builds a product, an IT product, that is not compliant with law. And what happens then, in the worst case, is, is that the government gets sued, and then the Department of Justice has to go and defend them, and guess whose money is being spent? Taxpayers. Guess who is not, whose needs are not being met? Taxpayers, because if, if the person who is visually impaired is unable to view the results or the information on a website, then what's the purpose of having that information there? We had a contract back in the day that I think had like at least 10 or 20 people uh, reviewing those solicitations manually to help agencies. So, but it, the way it was done, it was a randomly selected sample of probably 1% of all solicitations in a span of six months or a year. And they would review 1% of them, randomly selected. And then they would generate letters, and those agencies would receive those letters eventually, stating solicitation number so-and-so was not compliant with Section 508. Please correct accordingly. Contact us for information if you need it. So by then, the solicitation obviously already had been awarded. The work had been underway and probably already built. So there was no tracking mechanism to see, did they actually correct it? Because at that point, it's in their hands. You probably are aware of lawsuits, and there were public information that government, including GSA, was sued for accessibility law noncompliance. So what we decided to do is, or what we realized is that it's just, first of all, it's not sustainable, it's not scalable. We can hire a thousand people, but again, it's human, you know, review, it, it's just not gonna work. We need artificial intelligence, we need, we need machine learning in order to be able to scan through that entire population of uh, solicitations posted in FedBizOps and separate the ones that are IT. They're actually called ICT, Information and Communication Technology, but for the easier use, I just say IT. And then scan those using a predictive model and apply that predictive model to all the solicitations and predict their compliance with Section 508. You would think it's easy because maybe in your mind it's like, oh, it's just like probably a, a set paragraph that contains that language, so you can just do a keyword search but it's not that easy. If you go to accessibility.gov and see the accessibility law, it's pages and pages and pages long. There are so many clauses, there are so many scenarios, there are so many exceptions based on the type of product you're building that it's impossible to just look for a particular set of um, paragraphs. So it becomes very creative, it becomes disruptive, it becomes a set of natural language processing, machine learning, several models, several algorithms, and I'll just name a few, like support vector machine and logistic reg regression and Bayesian networks, in order to 
get, you know, first you, you basically you process the data, you, you create a matrix with all the unique words, and then you start to create a controlled vocabulary so that you use only those heavy-weighted words in order to predict. And to do that, you have to have training data. And to have training data, we used years and years of data, so it's about a 1,000 solicitations that have been manually reviewed. And that's what we used to build this predictive engine. Now it's in pilot. It also has a web portal component. So as we predict the compliance of all the solicitations, we post them in a, in a web portal, and then subject matter ex experts and agency users can log in and see <coughs> representing their agency, what's on their docket, essentially. Because there's still, in version one, you have to have human intervention in order to provide useful feedback, the feedback loop in order to make your predictive engine smarter. We are currently migrating and getting ready for production. We're going to go uh, into production in cloud.gov environment. The entire application is built on uh, using open source technology, which is great. Because, and we're in GitHub, too. So what's great about that is we are scalable we're agile, and we can always add more use cases. So right now it's Section 508. In the future, it can be FedRAMP, it can be cybersecurity, sustainability, green buy. So really, 80% of all federal, federal uh, requirements are, are the same. So, um, and there's no, uh, what's great about it, it's unprecedented. There isn't an application like that in order to be able to provide quality control. Um, of the solicitations. And who else but GSA would do that, right? Because we actually, we are housing so many of those solicitations. We have to take a break. You just heard from Marina Fox, who leads the .gov domain services in the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA. Fox spoke at the recent ATARC Big Data Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the program, I caught up with Marina Fox, who leads the .gov domain services in the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA, after she spoke at the recent ATARC Big Data Summit. So the solicitation review tool uh, is currently being migrated from our AWS sandbox environment, as part of the GICIT, to uh, cloud.gov, which is a completely different setup, and um, it will then have to go through an ATO process. And so our plan is to put it into production by fall, of 2019. The, the whole point was to make Section 508 compliance not easier per se, but so you guys know who's compliant and who's not, right. more accurate. Can you talk a little bit more about where that came from? Was it just kind of a, an aha moment, like, oh, we could do this? Or was there a request by somebody? Or I think it was a combination of a lot of things. One is we had a an expensive contract that would only take 1% of all the solicitations and review them manually. And we had to pay the co contractor a lot of money to do that. But it still would only scratch the surface. And even anecdotally, the compliance across the solicitations were so low that it was really a red flag. So if 1% shows us such a low compliance, then we have a real issue. Because what that does is that advocacy groups then sue the government, Department of Justice has to defend them, and it costs agencies a lot of money. SAM.gov was sued as part of GSA. That's just one example. HHS.gov was sued as well. So it really is an issue, and it starts with the solicitation quality. If the government does not release solicitation that contains regulatory, uh, federal re regulatory requirements, then technically companies don't have to abide by that. So the education component is important, but also because the procurement system across the government is not consistent and not the same. Statement of works get published and get posted and they all have a variety of creative 
non-structured data. So our job is to catch it all. And so when we, when we realized that this is a real need, we said we need to do something about it. And we had a data scientist as part of our staff. And it all started with just developing some scripts in Python um, and trying to see how we can scale it. And it all evolved into now known as Solicitation View tool using machine learning. And in the future, it's going to be full-blown AI because it's going to have a prediction and a recommendation engine. So people don't have to like go somewhere and fix it, but they can fix it straight in the web portal. And basically what's going to happen is if I'm a contracting officer, I'm going to get alerted or somebody, the 508 coordinator will get alerted. Mm -hmm. And then that person will say, hey, Marina, you need to fix your solicitation because the review says you didn't meet this requirement. An email will be sent automatically to the POC who is listed on that solicitation saying your solicitation is not 508 compliant. You need to publish an, ad an amendment to it while it's still on, on FedBizOps. So that's kind of the first step. But the ultimate sort of scenario is that it is fixed even before it gets uploaded to FedBizOps. So it becomes part of the transactional system where this prediction runs as the CO or uh, a POC attempts to upload this to FedBizOps and it runs through a complete quality check and it kicks it back saying you got to fix it for 508 and other requirements. And that's really the difference here. You become much more predictive, get ahead of it versus always exactly. behind it. Give me a sense, you, you guys developed this internally or you said it was a one person writing some Python scripts? Or it started with one person who was our, uh, was a Fed, was part of our staff. And then when we saw the future in it, we're like, you know what, we need to, we really need to invest in this. And so we, um, we had a solicitation out and we had a company called United Solutions who worked with us for about a year and they built it into what it is today. Now we're working with another company who are going to help us migrate this solution into cloud.gov and then continue to expand it. Uh, uh, officially, it started a year and a half ago and it grew from a, a few Python scripts on someone's computer to, you know, now we have, um, it, it's an enterprise solution, really. Uh, using all open source technology, we, we use, as I mentioned, so Python is for all the data science. We use MongoDB for our database. We use uh, Node.js for the interface. Uh, we're using, right now, machine learning uh, algorithms, but in the future will be true AI, where it's, you know, actually making decisions on what needs to be done in order to fix it, not just saying it's non-compliant and putting that stamp, stamp on it. And you have envisioned this, I know this is getting ahead, but you could use this for other things that are requirements. You, I think you mentioned FedRAMP, other federal acquisition yes. requirements. Yes, in fact, the White House is also interested in using this, this tool for checking on sustainability requirements. Um, we also have a lot of interest in using it for, well, cybersecurity in general, FedRAMP, FICAM, and also uh, Green Buy. So there's a lot of, of course, GSA is the house of acquisitions, right? So this is our home and the demand is high, So, the, but we have to work with the budget and constantly shrinking budget in order to provide the solution. But you know, you can only estimate the savings across the government when you can prevent lawsuits and uh, the money you would have otherwise spent on millions of dollars on contracting in order to review just a portion of it. Now we're going across the entire population of these solicitations and doing it in a matter of hours. So that's the real power. The test you guys ran on this, it's been testing for how many uh, months or years and then also 
how many solicitations have you put through? Like, uh, it doesn't start at zero and go to one, but what was the test like, I guess? We built the predictive model using a thousand solicitations, previously reviewed manually. And so when we built the predictive model, we started running them through the new solicitations, which we scan every 24 hours from FedBizOps. We started that uh, in September of 2017. And so it's been, and then we stopped, because right now we're migrating. So it's been about nine months of every day running through solicitations. It's been thousands that we've reviewed. And we've had a extensive user acceptance testing using Section 5 coordinators and other accessibility experts reviewing the solicitations that the SRT tool predicted as compliant and non-compliant so that we can catch false positives and false negatives. And the prediction rate, the accuracy, is 95%, which is really high for non-structured data. So we have great confidence, and, and we started with the hard case. So like the accessibility use case is one of the hardest because there's so much written about it and the law is so extensive. And there's so many exceptions that are, you know, basically you just overwrite something just because it's, let's say it's DOD, for example. So there's a lot of hard-coded exceptions that have to go into play. And so we believe that from now, now that we've tackled the hard one, the other ones are going to be a little bit easier. A little bit easier. Plus, you've already kind of, we've learned all the nuances. So again, it's, it's natural language processing. So it's just using, we're using, it has to be machine readable. One thing we also discovered scanning FedBizOps is that so many files get uploaded that are image files, like PDF image files. You can't, you can't do anything about that. So it also became a quality control for, for making sure that FedBizOps doesn't even accept those in the first place. Real quick, what's the reaction from the contracting community? Are they thankful you're doing this, or are they kind of giving you the, uh, uh, the, the, the little bit of a, a sneer? <laughs> we haven't really like surveyed them, but from just onesies, twosies that we have, we have um, a tool called Digital Dashboard, and it's on digitaldashboard.gov. It's a uh, government-only reporting tool. So what it does is we use an open-source tool called Pally to scan all of the public-facing websites, and it's just website, it's just one of the products, right? Not software, but it's a website, and um, we detect the websites that are not built with 508 compliance. So what happens then is because it is then reported, the agencies then have to go to their contractor and say, can you please fix this? And they can say, well, it's not in the, in the SOW. So it creates the, but it's a law. So I think both sides will be thankful because I think contracts, contractors need clarity of requirements and agencies, they just need to be able to put that in so that there is no surprise. I don't think anybody likes surprises. And, and you, know, in, uh, you know, some contractors have a long kind of built relationship with GSA, so they're like, yeah, we'll fix it, you know, because it's, it, you know, we have to. But others push back, so we want to eliminate that. Uh, this, you know, this balance. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This week, we heard from Kevin Cox, the program manager of the CDM program at DHS, and then from Marina Fox, who leads the .gov domain services in the Office of Government-Wide Policy at GSA. I'm Jason Miller, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.